0: Welcome to episode 64 of Talking Dirty. Over at East Ruston Old Vicarage, looking very demure on this windy autumn day, we have Alan Edward Herbert Gray, our happy and very handsome horticulturalist.
1: And absolutely blossoming down in Cambridgeshire, we have Thordis Maria Sophia Fredrickson. You're looking absolutely lovely. I love your top. Is it a top or a dress?
0: It's a whole dress. My God. Spooned in flowers. It's flashing out. And it has pockets. Oh! <laughs> Us gals and possibly guys do love. Well, dress I was going to say pockets. it could be a
1: garden visiting dress because you could have capacious pockets for nicking cuttings. <laughs> Would I? No. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Actually, we may come on to the fact that Alan's been taking lots of cuttings over the course of this podcast. It's been a busy morning at East Ruston Old Vicarage, but mm. we should introduce our lovely guest, the lovely Lucy Slater of Johnny Crow's Garden. I mean. This Instagram page is what you should look at if you need to cheer up, if you need to be filled with joy. It is absolutely full of the most colourful flowers. Lucy, welcome to the podcast. And um, do you have a
2: middle name to share? It's Jane, plain old Jane. I wish it was something more gorgeous. But no. <laughs> and any reason for the Lucy or the Jane? Were there stories there? Oh, God, I wish there was. No, <laughs> just Jane Jane.
0: <laughs> well, I tell you what, never mind reasons for your name. What about reasons for the Jolly Crow's Garden bit?
2: Okay, so that is an old book. So this book that I found in the tip, oh god, I'm trying to think how many years ago, well, it was quite a long time ago, and I wanted a, a flower shop years ago, and I just had this imaginary, this idea that I was going to have the book as the, the name of the shop and I was thinking of merchandise and I was, oh God, it was just a wonderful book and it really inspired me. And then um, I came here to Witheridge, which is the village we live in now, 15, 20 years later, created the garden, blah, 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 I'm going to resurrect the name. This lady in the village said to me, why did you call yourself Johnny Crow's garden? And I said, well, because I really like it. This is his book, blah, blah, blah. And so I got a phone call about three days later from the son of the gardener of Johnny Crow's garden. This book was written in 1900. There you go. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? And, and oh, it's not far away, just down, down the other side of the village. What did they say in the phone call? It was just. It was more like you've heard of this book because nobody has heard of the book because it's out of print. It's been out of print for years and years and years. It really shouldn't be. It's an amazing little book. It's really charming. The most beautiful illustrations. And what resonated with me was there's a little crow who loves parties and loves gardens, and it had a sort of Alice in Wonderland, dreamy sort of quality for me. So. all sorts were firing off in my mind and I just loved it. So it was really strange and coincidental that that story ended up back here in this really small little village in Witheridge. So there you go. I love that. Do people think you're called Johnny though? Yeah, they do. And that's great. (laughs) I do like it. It's better than Jane. (laughs)
0: I quite like the uh, kind of androgynous nature therefore that it's a bit like with when I contact people they generally don't know if I'm a man and I quite like that they they don't quite know who they're dealing
2: with. Yeah no I know what you mean I quite like it too I'm I'm quite happy for people to call me Johnny I think it's fun.
0: Now of course I mean Alan and I we follow so many increasingly you know wonderful Instagram pages that are full of floral inspiration. Uh, Bridget Girling has been on this podcast many times, dear friend of ours who, it is floral artistry, isn't it, Alan? It isn't the kind of, when we say florist, it's it's adapted into something which is just an expression of emotion and artistry that's completely
1: otherworldly. I think the artistry bit is, is the thing that actually sells it to me because I do believe that it is an art. I mean, you can either do it or you can't. Now, When I looked at your um, some of your pages, Lucy, I was absolutely blown away because I don't think that um, have you had anyone recently use colour as um, as boldly perhaps as you do, um, oh. and I, I I just find that so refreshing. I mean the knockout pow, Wow, what <laughs> <laughs> that kind of feeling I think is terrific. I've actually got something here, which I don't know whether you've ever used in your in your floral art. Can you see that? Oh, that's
2: beautiful! No, I haven't, but those colours are beautiful. Now that's a soft palette, isn't that beautiful?
1: Yeah. That's from an Echeveria, and the Echeveria is called Monaloa, Loa, and it's named Monaloa Loa after a Hawaiian volcano because it has all those kind of, sort of ashy and fiery colours in it, and I just think it's so lovely. I've, exactly. As I said earlier, I've been taking cuttings, and these things, they grow like a cabbage on a stick, and then when the stick gets too tall, you have to lop the heads off and you know put the, put the stem down into the ground again low, at lower level. Um, and th- when I do that, I have to take the flowers off, and this is what it is. You know, It's just such a... A nice thing I think.
2: So talking of cabbage, I do grow cranberries here and I do get that huge explosion. of yeah. White flowers and that would be lovely. I'm, I don't do weddings because that would be wonderful for a wedding. Um, so I, I'm a gardener really. I've been gardening for 30 years now. God. And so I I like colour and I like using colour and yeah. I And I think that probably shows in the fact that I actually don't have a favourite. Everything, every season there's a different favourite. But I do love some of these accounts that I follow which are really soft and beautiful and delicate. But I'm a great big six foot, I fall into everything. Loud and
1: proud, darling, loud and
2: proud. (laughs) Yeah, and I'm not delicate and I admire hugely the delicate accounts and I think they're very very beautiful but um, I've given up trying I have tried and I've given up <laughs> no, I like to just
0: throw it all in there. So you grow obviously a lot of the material you use you are kind of predominantly a, a gardener grower uh, and also artist and um, so do you find yourself kind of pouring over seed catalogues and plant lists and things trying to see what new punchy colors you
2: can add to your, your cutting garden? I do. Um, I think for the last two years, what I've been doing is developing a very, very difficult land. So we have about nine acres here and about four of the acres are paddocks. And that is what I'm gradually developing. Now it is, there's about that much subsoil, no topsoil. And the rest of it is heavy, heavy clay. So I, what I've actually had to do over the last two years is create lots of raised beds so that in the winter time, the ground isn't absolutely sodden. And so I'm doing lots of annual flowers really. So lots of pretty much every annual flower you can imagine ha- I've had to go at. <laughs> the more complicated plants, I haven't really invested in too much yet because it's about time and it's about what my land here will allow um, I, I've had some disasters and I've had some, and I've had some um, successes, but um, it's all about learning really. And at the moment I'm, I'm creating another three quite large beds exclusively for roses. And I'm hoping because there's no room left for where I know the roses will be safe over, to, over winter. So what I'm doing is I'm putting these new rose beds in what I call iffy ground, because in the winter it will get waterlogged we have huge amounts of water logging. People think I'm exaggerating, but if you were to come here in the winter and stand behind polytunnel number one and just stand there, you will hear water under your feet. It's incredible. So actually, for me, trying to, it's a balance of growing things which I know will do well here. Um, and I think over the next few years, I'm going to be trying out different things but at the moment it's quite it's about saving my money the amount of disasters I've had with planting trees I put willow trees in because it's a waterlogged place but of course what happens with heavy clay is in the summer it totally dries out and it becomes a desert so my willows fail Um, and so everything all my trees are on little hills now little hillocks so that they can get their roots down, and then they can cope with the waterlogging, and then in the summer they're they're okay as well. So it, it's a it's a steep curve, and I whenever I go to people's gardens in this beautiful soil, oh my goodness! <laughs> <laughs> if I had beautiful soil, I'd be the best gardener.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, you should, come, you should come and visit these Rossnell vicarage because we have the best soil, and it's what's known in in the farming business is grade one agricultural. So, I mean, it's a light sandy loam, it's free draining. Um, it's all the things that probably your soil isn't. But one thing I would just say to you is that roses do particularly like growing in clay soils. So providing they don't not, they don't get too waterlogged in the winter or there's some way of draining some of that water away, I think you're going to be very successful with them. Well,
2: we're, we're getting there. I've got lovely, lo- beautiful roses hopefully coming, but I'm particularly keen on some of these roses that I've really learned about through Instagram. So I've got Honey Dijon and Bella Pock. Um is
1: the most fantastic colour. Yeah,
2: especially <laughs> it's the back of Bella Pock, which is the most fantastic colour. It's the way it, it's one thing in the middle and then it's another thing on, on the outside. And I love that. I also love Coco Loco, although actually funnily enough, a girlfriend came around the other day and she looked at my um, Coco Loco. She like, oh they're horrible. They make me feel sick. <laughs> Some colours. Do push people into difficult areas? I don't know why, Catherine? There's a little iris in the spring. Catherine Hodgkin. have you seen that one? Yeah, yeah. Beautiful pale watercolour blue. But a few people I've have been at the garden and look at mine and get, oh, I'm not sure about that. It's very strange. Certain colours.
1: I think because it has a lurid quality about it because it's got it's got that dirty sort of white and lurid sort of green and and the yeah. blue in there and there's an awful lot of White with it, I mean, not clean white but dirty white with it, and I think because it looks like that, there's a, there's another one that's very similar, I can't remember the name of that. Um, but it's, it's um, uh, it is just one of those things. And Coco Loco is another one which you've yeah. just the rose Coco Loco because it does look, I find that color fascinating to me. It looks like old parchment yeah, to other people, it, it looks like sick or something, I don't know. Um, it, it just puts them off. I personally don't you,
2: you've ever noticed this, but if you I've created a few gardens before and I've put all sorts of bits and bobs in and if I'm working with clients who are new to gardening they like obvious colours and Mm. they like shapes and form and texture if you put anything unusual in I've noticed they're not so keen it takes as you develop in horticulture it takes a certain eye to suddenly appreciate the more unusual plants and more unusual colors I think that's partly you know that's when I get people who come here get oh I don't like that color I think it's possibly because they're new to flowers or or not um, as experienced in color
1: yeah I think you have to grow into those sort of colors um, and you have to be slightly odd about your color palette yourself, Perhaps <laughs> I don't know.
0: Well, I mean, it's, it's interesting. interesting. It's interesting. I think um, euphorbias are a plant family that you kind of grow into. I remember walking around. Gardens. Even when I was sort of a couple of years into gardening with friends who weren't into gardening at all, and I just say, Oh, look at that amazing euphorbia And they'd say, That's really ugly. That's really weird. I don't like it at all. And um, oh. and you generally see euphorbias in the gardens of people who clearly love plants, when especially in an area where I live, where not not that many people are massively into gardening, you sort of see very few euphorbias in certain gardens. Um, but I do love Lucy, how honest the people who come to your garden are. Yeah. <laughs>
2: They are. I've got some really honest friends. I remember my friend's mother came and she said, I really want to have a look around your garden. So our main part of the garden is sort of laid to borders and she was loving it all and seeing how nice it was. And then she went, I took them through to the cutting area and loved all the usuals, the cosmos and the salvias. Anyway, she got up to the dahlias and she went, oh, I hate dahlias. And of course, I've got a lot of dahlias, so it was—I'm not quite sure how I'm supposed to take that. But um, yeah, I've had a few of those.
1: There's one way to take that, Lucy, and just turn to her and say, "Well, honey, that's your problem because you're missing out."
2: <laughs> well, absolutely. There's this—there's this thing about dahlias. When my mother was young, dahlias were really not fashionable at all. My mother used—my mother was a bit snobby, and she would say that they were allotment flowers. Now I love a lot more flowers and now they've gone all the way around and everybody loves um dailies and I think they're brilliant and wonderful but plants go in and out of fashion yeah for example campus grass was really out of fashion and now especially in floristry it's wonderful absolutely wonderful and there's lots of different varieties I don't know the varieties but there's a, a pink one as well as a white one and yeah it's just interesting to see how how because I'm so old I've watched fashions go up and then down like When I was in my 20s, it was very fashionable to have dried flowers. And then because of it, dried flowers suddenly became out to my mind, and I think were out of fashion. And now the younger generations are bringing dried flowers back in again. And I'm finding it quite hard to embrace the dried flower because I remember Potpourri in the 80s and how dusty and horrible it was. But it is lovely to see the next generation um, embracing.
1: uh, And bringing it back perhaps with a touch of originality because that's what usually happens, isn't it? A fashion, um, let's take the mini skirt or hot pants or whatever. You take those and they then they come back into fashion, but they're not the same as they were 30 years ago. So there's always that little twist. And, and, and I think it's a similar thing to what authorities was saying. You can actually go along and look at, I don't know, 16 front gardens in suburbia and there'll be one that stands out, whether it is the Euphorbia or something else, another plant, but it will stand out. And it will stand out because you'll suddenly look at that. If you're a gardener, that is, you'll look at it and you think, "Gosh, that person knows something." And he's got that growing in his garden or her garden. You know, it's 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 that's where it is.
2: Yeah, definitely. Euphorbias are absolutely one of my favourites. I, I think they're wonderful, and I can't get enough of them. So actually, I think more people need to grow euphorbias because there's so many varieties, as you know. Mm. Um, I'm particularly keen on uh, polychroma and palustris. I grow that in in the spring. It comes up with uh, Camassia lectunii, and I love that combination in the spring. I think it's wonderful.
1: Yeah, do you grow Euphorbia? Oh, the, the, the annual one, do you grow that? So it's it's the kind of thing that you only need one plant of because once you've got had one plant, you'll have it forever. Um, and I have to say that because um, I've seen it sold as, as plug plants at fiendishly expensive prices. <laughs> And I yeah. think, well, I've got a load I can dig up and, and you know, move around and all the rest of it. Um, it is a lovely thing. And um, it's so good for picking. That lovely acidic lime green and yellow and acid and all of those yeah. things, so and good. And
2: actually, palustris goes the most beautiful autumnal orangey-red.
1: Well, means of wet places, so it should love you. It
0: does. Yeah. <laughs> it <really> does. <laughs> yeah, I and used to. So- that- I used to have palustris in my mum's garden and I don't have it here and I keep meaning to add it because it, we used to have um, Abu Hassan tulips that would yeah. come up through it and it was just such a lovely combo. I'm missing that in my life. Yeah, you, yeah,
2: definitely get that. And also the red, is it Griffithii? Is, there, is that the red
1: Yeah, There's that two forms of it. There's uh, Euphorbia Griffithii, Dixter and yeah. another name variety. Fireglow? Fireglow, yes. yeah, that's right.
2: There's very little to
1: change to, to, to between them really, I mean it doesn't matter which one you grow, you'll still get that lovely orange colouring. And I saw that, uh, I saw a combination of a, a spirea that has young foliage, brilliant rusty, orangey rusty colour, rusty yes. orange parrot tulips yes. and that euphorbia and that was at uh, Wallerton Old Hall which is a garden in Staffordshire. And if ever you'd get the chance, either of you two young ladies, if you get the chance to go and visit it, you should, because it is, um, it's, is—it's, I think, one of the top gardens in the country.
2: Really, really. Um, I do love seeing combinations. And I think that that's the most wonderful thing by going into different gardens is just seeing, you might only take away one thing, and that will be, I like this and this and this together. And I love that. Mm. I yeah. I love gardening, really. And also how many
0: of them weren't planned. Uh, that's one of my favourite things, how or, or possibly you, you intervene and you kind of created it, but you didn't know it was going to happen or Mother Nature just did it all. I had a lovely, I put a helichrysum in next to a self-seeded Michaelmas Daisy. And so I've ended up with this lovely glowing orange helichrysum and the lovely purple kind of red centered aster. And it's a great combination. And I did not plan it. <laughs> it just happened. I was but, little accident. Sometimes yeah. they,
1: they produce some of the best things that happen in gardens. And, you know, the other thing is when you talk, we're talking about self-seeding plants. Sometimes the plant will self-seed right where you just don't expect it at all. I mean, I've got the splenium, the heart's tongue ferns. They're growing in my front doorstep. Would I clean them out? No, they chose to grow there. And I love them for that. I think that's, that's terrific. Yeah. It is
2: terrific. I love ferns, actually. The other thing I love in the spring is um, uh, forget-me-nots, everywhere, I just love them, billowy soft blues. And I, I actually, I split them at this time and then put them all over the garden so that I get that, that one knitted color of blue going throughout. Mm. And the other thing, talking of which, is have you noticed that in garden centres now you can buy the red Campion, Celine? I forget yes, it. Yeah, It's ridiculously expensive and it goes everywhere, and it's <laughs> to me. It's like, what? Yeah, come here, I can give everybody loads if they want.
1: <laughs> you get
0: these mysterious things. Alan and I have talked about this before, how expensive serinthi seeds are. I don't know if it's because yeah. they're big and so people think when they're selling them they look impressive in a packet, but you get hardly any for your money and yet if you have a plant, you will have
2: a carpet of it. Yeah, no, it's very, very true actually. I have hundreds of them, absolutely hundreds and they originally came from one packet And in fact, I've just finished collecting the seeds from the garden um, a couple of days ago and I probably have enough to fill 20 envelopes. That gives (laughs) you just how many. So yeah, it is great. Well, if you need to top up
0: your income, start selling the syrinthi seed because it fetches a lot of packet. (laughs) Gary's forever telling me you ought to be selling those. You ought to be selling now I know lurking off screen you've got some very exciting show and tell because you sort of pre-podcast chat it dashed into picture and then out again <laughs> so we got this brief flash of what was coming up and it looked absolutely beautiful so what have you brought along to talk about today
2: oh I think I'd pick some I don't know if you can see it actually I thought I'd pick some autumnal colour um I did a bake um an arrangement yesterday so it's what's left over and I just wanted to show you look at that autumnal colour most florists will know all of these anyway but I just thought I'd show so that's Rebecca Sahara. I just want to talk about the colour oh my god isn't that beautiful love it yes Weekly love about flowers and is how many colours you can get out of one flower so look at that it's wonderful and then we got the cherry brandy yeah she's lovely and then I love my creamy my little queen. I just love zinnias. When I found the eyes on zinnias, when I was, I don't know, much, much younger than I am now, I thought they were the most magical flowers I've ever seen. Look at them. Zinnia love like me. Look at that, she says. Look at them. Oh. Are, think- so, so what ones do you grow? Because actually
0: this was a question that came up on our most recent post bag edition was uh, suggestions of zinnias to grow. Because obviously there are several different types um, and they're oh. all very tempting.
2: These are definitely my favourite. These are the queenies. So you can get queenie red, queenie lime and orange and all sorts. And they're the ones that I really, really love because if you're, they've got so many different colours in one flower. so that's... They're kind of
0: hard to believe. I think like a queenie red lime, which I think I love the most of all of that series. You, you cannot believe it. And the great thing about zinnias is, is how the flower develops. So it first opens and it looks completely different to how it looks at the end. So wow. it's just this exciting adventure in one bloom.
1: And, and they are, are so beautifully long lasting. Yeah. I mean, the petals are tough. They're more, more like brats and they are petaloid yeah. things. And, and yeah. I think... That's probably why they last such a long time.
2: Yeah. yeah and for me, because I also sell them as uh, jam jar um, flowers at the end of our drive. So for me, they're great anyway, because they look wonderful and they'll last forever. So those are my Rebecca's. I just want to talk about a few other things which I particularly love at the moment. Look at this. Look at these. I love the way these the geranium. They smell like gin. I can't remember which variety it is. But absolutely love these leaves. Oh. Don't you think they're really soft and velvety. Um, and I've just got them in a bucket. I think they came with something else, um, which I then planted and they stayed in the bucket. And they've been in the bucket for about, growing in the bucket for about um, three years. But I absolutely love those. And then I've got Persicaria red dragon. Oh. How, I think she's more beautiful now when just before she drops her leaves, then when she's actually just red and lovely in the summer, and then I just love um, these are still bees. look how lovely and oh yeah, I think that's beautiful. I love that and a little bit of bracken. Nothing special with bracken I know but when you put it all together, oh so nice. <laughs> Curious. This is a bit floppy now. Ooh. I do know, really not a good show and tell example. Outside, I could give you something far better than that. But I love coleus this year. I've been buying it from places like, um, what well, supermarkets, and then just bringing them on and making, and putting a bit of chicken manure with them. And they've been huge and wonderful. And I have about 10 um, large terracotta pots full of coleus, which will be the last thing standing when it comes to colour in this garden. <laughs> They are
0: wonderful, and you know what? I don't, I never realised. So I'm going to reach over to my.
2: It's gone. It's gone
0: over a bit now, really. But I've had this on my windowsill, which is actually too bright for it. But I never realised, having never how, having, having thought of them predominantly in my head as a foliage plant, how fantastic the flower spike can be. And yeah. um, and these look they're more lilac in real life, really. And they've gone over a bit. But I mean, just they are unbelievable plants. I'm going to grow loads more coleus next year. This one is. <laughs> Terrible name, chocolate covered cherry. <laughs>
1: <Nice>. <laughs> I think yeah. everybody should realise they're quite easy to grow from seed and they'd love to grow in shade. Oh, the coleus, so, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they they'd love they love shade. So if you want to have a, a power or an, an impact, you know, wow, wow factor in your garden in a shady spot, bang in some coleus.
2: Yeah. 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 Top tip. So one more thing. This is a thylactrum, um Ellen. And then yes, it's the tallest one. I, why I love this is in the summer, the leaf is lovely and Glauca bluey gray, which is beautiful. And then it turns to this, look how it holds onto the green in the middle, it just is beautiful. So to me, that's that's just lovely. So that's what I got out of the garden this morning. Um, I could have been a little bit cleverer, but I just think these colors are wonderful and they really sum up now. I think you were clever enough. Um, Also, I mean,
0: the Rudbeckia is, again, another one that's really easy from seed. And then Mm. I generally find, you know, you grow them, you put them in the garden, you sort of forget about them and they come back and they just bulk up and get stronger and lovelier every year. And you get such a lot of variety, you know, this this one family and you can get things like um, Sahara or Cherry Brandy or... um, I don't know if you've had, I saw something in an arrangement that looked a lot like Irish eyes. I don't know if it was the one you had, but that kind of green centered one, really bright yellow, um, but with a green heart. Just
2: what a variety. Really beautiful. And another one that can just last forever and ever, which I think is marvellous. I've got one more show and tell, actually. So... um, Last year, I got very excited about colour. I thought, I like, am going to really plough colour into the garden and be really clever, mm, right? So, I ordered some um, some corn, Indian gem corn.
1: Yeah.
2: I didn't know okay, so I just thought, oh my god, I'm going to do bouquets. It's going to be amazing. I'm going to make incredible things with them. So. I got the oh it's just like jack and the beanstalk like, so they came in this packet in every single kind of different color mauve blue you name it so exciting um they were growing brilliantly this this year and they got to this stage yeah and then they ripened on the top can you see yeah but they any fatter than this and if you open it up they would just stayed white inside oh i everything correctly why do you think i didn't get my lovely colorful gems
1: i think you, it's lack of sunshine
2: do you think that's all it is because it was in the best sunny position so it's had the best that we had to offer
1: yeah but i think i think that we didn't have enough we- enough sunny weather this year for, for those to develop their true colors
2: and yet on the opposite side i had some ordinary corn for eating and that ripened beautifully
1: yeah
2: oh At least you can just
0: blame the climate, blame the weather and you don't have to feel personally responsible, Lucy. Exactly. It's
2: nothing
0: to do with. (laughs) (laughs) Do you give over some space to edibles then? It is, um, you know, not not exclusively
2: flowers. I mean, at least you've got a bit of space I suppose to play with. I have, um, it's the time I haven't got. I have got the space, but I don't have the time to do it all because I do actually do it on my own. Um, Gary's brilliant. He does all this fantastic building work, but gardening is is my domain. Um, I do, this year I didn't do quite as many vegetables as I did the previous year. During lockdown, we had loads of time. So I was doing that, but I think I'm wanting to push more vegetables again next year because I kind of missed some of that that lovely thing about pig. I did a few peas and beans and bits and bobs. I've just harvested some lovely squashes. Um, but I would like to do more this winter we're gonna make, we, <laughs> love that. Gary's got to make me can, it should be nice. So yes, I would like to do some edibles because I think it's really nice to have that combination. And going back to the allotment, I just love allotment gardens. I like to see flowers and vegetables growing side by side. And I don't really even like to see a raised bed of one vegetable. I like to see um, a raised bed with three or four vegetables and actually my, my, not my Indian gem corn, but my other corn had some other bits and bobs growing up it. So I like to have that combination. I think it looks really pretty. And I think aesthetically a vegetable stroke cutting garden is the prettiest garden for, for yeah. me. Yeah.
0: yeah. And, and also because your arrangements are so vivacious, I can well imagine some pretty funky veg making it into an arrangement.
2: Yeah. Well, you know, I always intended to but actually my veg is too ordinary. Oh, sorry, veg, but it's not quite as pretty as I'd hoped. Um, I had some amazing purple um, kale, which last winter just continued growing and growing. It got to about seven foot tall. It was amazing and if i'd actually had a big do on i could have made a really nice arrangement with that so yeah i mean some heritage beans would be nice i think next year so just some interesting colors and twiggles and yeah i think i think i will get around to it i that's my intention anyway because i do this year i did miss the quantity of vegetables which we didn't do yeah i mean alan if anyone's looking for color
0: inspiration on a veg plot you kind of you do have that veg area at East Ruston Old Vicarage, but it is absolutely like singing and dancing with flowers at every possible
1: corner. Well, yes. I mean, I think I I always tell the tale that, you know, visitors arrive at the garden and they think we've got some kind of alchemy going on as if we know some kind of secret to, to to growing flowers and vegetables together. But it's something that my grandparents always did. And um, it's something that I do now. And I think, I think it does help. It brings pollinators into the, into the veg plot. So, I mean, that helps from that point of view. And I always think that, you know, today we're all trying to garden organically and without the use of pesticides and things. And if you grow a greater variety of things together, then you'll get some, you know, you, you'll get some predators onto your pests as well as pests on your vegetables and things. So that helps. Um, bird boxes help too in the veg and cutting garden to bring in tits of all kinds because they're great predators on, on, on aphids. Um, but I think people think that we have some kind of secret when they come along and they see old-fashioned pot marigolds or tagetes um, or um, Liminanthes douglasii, you know, the poached eggplant growing amongst our, our veg. And I mean, it's purely and simply done because my family's always done that. And I think it gladdens the heart of the person who has to work in that garden. Um, and it pleases people when they pass by. And, you know, there's nothing like it. If you think about it, you go, well, I'll just pop up to the vegetable garden, I'll pick some beans, peas or whatever, carrots or something, and then you could, you know, you find yourself tarrying a while, shall we say, <laughs> <laughs> and you pick a little posy to bring in with you. Well, that's lovely.
2: Yeah, definitely. That's what it's all about, I think, is the more the merrier. And it certainly works here because when I first started gardening, I was gardening for other people and each bed of vegetables in one particular garden, I'm thinking of it, it was a monoculture in each bed. but. It didn't take long for the gentleman i work for to cotton on to the idea of putting in a calendula like you say, to jets or whatever and and gradually you, we could see it um an improvement in in plant health yes. and yield and it was yeah it was already and that was we're going back to the 90 oh god 30 30 years ago when people didn't talk like that you know people didn't grow like that cover crops no one did cover crops um and so it's it's a really it's encouraging to see how horticulture is becoming more environmentally friendly
1: i think there's quite quite it's quite something what you've just said lucy because i think if people only stop to think those that are old enough of the changes in horticulture in the last 30 years um which is to you not very long to me not very long but it is a long time um, and i think it's astonishing the way things have moved
2: yeah it re- it really is astonishing in actual fact the way i'm thinking now is is changing i mycorrhizal i mean do you use mycorrhizal it's i I use it's it's a relatively new thing for me in fact I've been reading a couple of books I've just finished reading Finding Finding the Mother Tree I've written it down by Suzanne Simard a really good book talking about the mycorrhizal system of trees and just learning about how flipping everything we know upside down and what's going on under the soil is more important in many ways than what's going on above the soil and actually that's a new area that i'm i'm particularly interested in um because my garden is a real mess and i leave it by the very last second before i start clearing it up um and um we do a no dig system here as well yeah. now And if people want to hear a bit more about uh, No Dig,
0: obviously Charles Dowding has an amazing YouTube channel and Instagram page and everything, but we did catch up with him on this podcast a few months back. So you can, uh, I'll link to that. And also when it comes to soil, uh, Professor Jane Rickson, uh, who I sort of separately encountered in my, my day job on the radio. I um We sat down for a podcast with her just really getting down into the nitty gritty about the composition of soil and all the different factors that are at play. And that was fascinating. So we'll link to that as well on the uh, video version so you can go and find them and obviously just... Search through our back catalogue on the uh, the audio podcast if you are if you're listening to this rather than watching. But there is so much, and in the end, soil health and looking after our soil is is absolutely critical.
2: Yeah, exactly. We've just signed up um, here in this village um, with I think about 15 other landowners, and we've been, we've got a mere nine acres, and a lot of them are farmers with 100 and 120 acres. There's a chap behind us with 175 acres. And we have all signed up to le- letting everything go wild, which is really amazing. So um, we, we, for us, that's not difficult. Because we're not a farm, so we're quite happy. Watch uh, the fields that we've got here um, are full of yellow rattle, and so we are. Our grass health is poor, and that's a good thing if you want to encourage flowers and wildlife. So our fields are full of butterflies at the moment. Uh, well, not now, but we're full of butterflies and wildlife. Um, I'm very proud to say that with my meter square, I have I made this meter square frame, and I go down onto the field and I. Count how much I've got in, how many different species of wildflower and herbage that I've got in that, and that's that's on the up. I've got up to about twenty two to twenty five different different species, which is really good. But my point being is that um, even farmers around here, I say even farmers, it's really hard for farmers too to become as wild as they can be. But by having these wild ribbons where we're going to all connect is is very. Um, it's encouraging in quite a difficult, we're all in a quite a difficult position now, aren't we, environmentally? So if you are in a position to be able to do something which is positive, um, which we are trying to do here, um, yeah, that's a good thing.
1: Yeah, we're trying to do that here. We're, we are letting areas um, rewild, in actual fact, just as you say. Um, but there has to be a certain amount of management, I think, otherwise you'll get one vigorous or aggressive species that takes over um but it's it's nice to actually be able to do that and and to support the fact that you know wildlife in our garden when we first bought extra land from a farmer and this must be 30 years ago lucy when we cultivated that land there were no earthworms in it none at all and it was 3 to 5 years before earthworms came back but they they did come back but I don't know whether it, is very de- it was very—they were discouraged by sprays or pesticides or very deep ploughing or what it was. But whatever it was, I mean, those sort of things have changed, and and that's one of the things that's changed in the last 30 years—not just gardens, but also farming as well. And I think everybody's trying to do their bit, especially so here in Norfolk, um, and lots of my friends are doing similar sorts of things. And. Um, I know that some people will say, well, you know, if you just leave one patch of nettles, that's not going to do that much good. It's not going to make that much difference. But if everybody does it, it must make a difference.
2: It absolutely does. And it's the corridor thing. It's connecting one garden to the next with little bits of wildlife or wild um, like nettles or whatever, which makes a big difference. We went to a farm, part of this network of farms that we're all connecting to, um, we went to and they have some Devon Reds about... I think about 10 Devon Reds which as they call it do damage. So they let them into the field and they do the damage, they break down young trees and they open up spaces, and then they move them along. So there is, there is a method in the madness of rewilding. Um, and the farm behind us, the two farms behind us has just introduced beavers. So. Yeah. Um, the beavers are going to slow down the rivers. So you have a river which is fast in areas and slow in other areas. So it can do what it's supposed to do. I mean, I don't purport to know an awful lot about it apart from the fact that I am hugely on board with trying to do this rewilding. And I think it's really important. And the earthworm thing is important. If you've got a garden and you're not sure the quality of your soil, you just need to make a little hole and see how many worms you've got. And that will be a very good indicator. With your wildflowers, do you
0: find when you get down there with your frame and you're analysing them, are there things that have kind of appeared over the last 12 months or whatever that you're extra
2: excited to have seen? Yeah. Um, i kind trying to think how many years ago when we first did it. Um, I think it was about 12 years ago. There was no red clover and a bit of white clover. Now we've got red clover and we've got vetch and we've got um, all, all sorts of bits and bobs. And so it's really, really nice. The other thing, of course, is we did actually introduce the yellow rattle. There was no yellow rattle and that's doing its job really very well. In fact, a friend of ours who's got horses said, oh, we can't put your horses here on this field anymore. There's just nothing for them. It's hardly any grass. It (laughs) was a hooray. We don't really need animals. We, I mean, there's plenty of fields around here for your cattle and for your horses. But for us here, it's for insects and creepy crawlies. (laughs) (laughs) Bit easier and cheaper to manage than horses, to be honest. Oh, God. Do you know how easy it is? You do nothing. (laughs) I love that. That's the that's the best way. Yeah, no, it's lovely. I, I'm yeah. <laughs> oh, now before
0: we have to wrap things up I mean this has just been a wonderful fun joyful chat uh, but before we do that we always squeeze in some flomo and from the sounds of things as this conversation has gone on I should think you probably have quite a lot of flomo to choose from Lucy um, I am gonna go first inspired actually by uh, an amazing arrangement that you put up that was very kind of colour coded and it seemed to have been inspired by different coloured sorbus berries and you had kind of Lime ones and orange ones and pink ones, and they were laying along the bottom. And then you had this fantastic combination of flowers that um, echoed that color um, kind of gradient in the arrangement yeah. itself. And I don't have any sorbus, I'm not entirely sure that Rowans would like my soil, but it did give me a lot of sorbus flomo just seeing those different berries. And then seeing how you'd sort of use that as an inspiration for an arrangement. I mean, I should think this time of year in particular, such inspiration when it comes to your arrangements.
2: Thank you. Um, I don't know if you've noticed, while the Wild Sorbus have done really well this year. Well, they certainly have in Devon. There's the, this, you get years where there's one thing that you drive, you're, you're driving through the lanes and you think, gosh, isn't that doing well this year? And this year it was Sorbus. Every single sorbus tree everywhere around here was so heavy with fruit. Um, it was just beautiful, absolutely beautiful. Um, but yeah, I think, thank you. That's very nice to hear. Um, I've got one of them, the yellow one. Um, I forget what it is. It was actually given to me as a really weedy little tree. It's and It's Jason Rock. Yeah, that's right. Jason and Rock. And, and they, it, they do really well, really, really well here. But actually, I think they do really well anywhere, don't they? I don't um, know. How they're are they? they too fussy. Good. There we go. I can have one. Mm. I think actually, if they can grow here, they can grow anywhere. And they, they're tolerant of clay and they're tolerant of chalk, I think. Um, yeah, they're, they're a tough little tree.
1: I'm just, th- I'm just thinking of a friend of mine called Annie, who had a business selling w- uh, dried flower arrangements 30 35 years ago. Um, And she had a farmhouse, and she used to have a dehumidifier to dry the flowers and all that sort of thing. Um, And it was amazing what she did. It'd be very dated now, but it was amazing then. And one day I went over to see her, and she had this, her most amazing rowan tree with plum-coloured berries on it. And I said, well, you must tell me what this tree is. And she said, it's my seedling. (laughs) (laughs) So She sowed some seed that somebody gave her, and that was the result. And I just think, you know, come on have a go it doesn't take that long yeah
2: yeah, yeah.
0: that sounds amazing it. it was <laughs> well yeah Rowan Rowan's at this time of year I'm having a lot of flow over that I should say if you've never watched this podcast or listened to it Flomo is is the kind of fear of missing out you get about a flower or a plant it's just how we live our lives so we thought we would introduce it to uh, to the podcast um Lucy how how are you going with things you
2: want to grow in the garden itself, I've always loved foxtail lilies. Can't grow those here. They actually like, like I think they like um, a lighter soil, or they do like a lighter soil. So um, I'm always up against it. And then there is, um, oh, this is beautiful flower. Now, I, I can't think of it. Alan, you might need to talk, while well, I'm just thinking of this.
1: <laughs> well, it's, it's interesting that you can't grow Eremurus, which is the foxtail lilies because we grow them in the desert wash here. And they, of course, that's what they like. They love those sort of hilly, rocky, stony, sandy places. And if you look at the root formation of a of Neremerus, it, it's like a starfish going out. And I think yeah. where you see them growing quite naturally in the wild in Europe, they're clinging on to the side because, you know, they're growing quite steep uh, hillsides where it's windy. And those roots are anchors so that when the, the, the stem waves around like that, It's got guy ropes all around it, clinging it into the soil. Um, But yeah, I mean, I think that one thing we should say to people is try not to buy them as potted plants, because if you do, you'll find that somebody screwed all the root ball up and shoved it into a long tom or something like that, deep flower pot. um, Mm -hmm. And it's not growing in its natural way. So if you buy the dried tubers or whatever they're called, roots, um, and you plant them with the central nodule which is the growing point. You plant that just about level or just peeping through the soil. They don't need deep planting, but they need to be spread out and they need to cover the ground so that they anchor the flower stems.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's very interesting. They really don't like it here though, because it is, I think it's not, it's just the whole environment. They just loathe it. And I literally take one out of the car and it'll die before it gets to the garden. (laughs) Enough. I heard it
1: screaming, no, please <laughs> put me back. I not back
2: the east. I know, it doesn't, it really doesn't want to be here. And um, the Bascoms I absolutely adore. I've never had a lot of joy with them here. The ones that I particularly like, there's a little variety called Jackie. I don't know if you've seen that one. It's the most beautiful movie orange. I have this thing about mauve and orange together. I think it's really pretty. Um, I've I've always coveted them. And I remember going to a nursery saying, why is it my Baskins, they're lovely in the first year, but here, here, but they never come back. And she said, well, you're living, you live in Devon. You know, this is the lady who sold them to me, by the way. What are you selling them to me for? You live in Devon. They do so well in Norfolk. (laughs) Quite different. It's like, well, why on earth are you selling me them? Because every year, I'd spend quite a lot of money on on having a whole line at the front of the house because it looks particularly pretty, the colourway there. And every, then the next year, they'd never come back. So things like that are always so frustrating. And I'm sure everybody is, is in that situation where you find a beautiful flower, you love it, and you try again and again and again, and it's, it just doesn't come back. And you have to learn just to get on with it, and, you know, give up. Well, they're going to go back something. to the roses. <laughs> uh, go back to things that you know do
0: do well. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we've all been there. You know, at first you don't succeed. Try, try and try again until you realise wrong plant, wrong place. <laughs>
2: exactly. we can't have it all.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, Alan, where are you at with your Flomo this week?
1: Well, my Flomo, mo even <laughs> harks back to our Chelsea Flower Show vi- visit. Um, because I've been working an awful lot with succulents, um, in thought is you'll know what I'm going to say probably. Um, but I've been working a lot with my succulents because we have big displays of succulents on benches outside underneath windows, like step step benches, and so we can display them nicely. Um, and by the end of the year, they sometimes get a little bit too tall, and I need to cut them back, or they need splitting and dividing, and I, that's what I've been doing. Um, and I started to think about the new, um, plants that we've got which is a cross between the sempervivum and an and Aeonium and they are called Semponiums and these oh. are exciting things and they come from your neck of the woods I think somewhere down there in oh, Penzance. Yeah. Penzance the next county along.
2: Uh, indoor plants I mean I used to have Aeoniums outside but I'd always bring them in in the winter and then they'd always fail because I never yeah. really looked after them.
1: Yeah but Lucy this is the point that the, the, what they've been doing that um, surreal succulents is they've crossed a Sempervivum, which is a house leak with an aeonium. And hopefully that will make the aeonium, half of the Semponium, be much hardier. And they look, they look like aeoniums, although they've got Sempervivum blood in them, if you like, or shall we say sap? <laughs> my fl- my flow is that there's, there's four new varieties um, being released by surreal succulents next year and I must right. have those in my collection just to see how they, wow. how they grow. How big do they get? Um, they don't get quite so tall as an aeonium will, and they're more sort of humping, so that if you have a, a, a large bowl that you can fill with, uh, you just will start with, with one plant, then it will have lots of rosettes around the edge and then they, have, in turn, have lots of ros- And so the whole thing builds up until, until you've got a thriving colony. Yeah,
2: Wonderful. Gosh, how, that, that sounds beautiful.
0: Yeah, Alan and I have, have talked quite a lot about these and I find every single time we talk about them, the more tempted I am to succumb because uh, I'm trying, my front garden, I, I try and not water it very much and... Um, And so I feel like I need more succulents in there because obviously they will, you know, they will relish once they're established and happy. If they can be hardy and they can get baked by the sun and not need watering, that would be marvellous. So every time you talk about it, I'll just edge that (laughs) bit closer to putting an order in. (laughs) Are they paying you money, Alan?
1: No, not at all. (laughs) Honestly.
0: Uh, Lucy, thank you so much for giving us so much inspiration and, uh, and allowing us a window into the, the kind of genius behind Johnny Crow's garden, because so many of us follow your exploits, but we don't always get to see you because it's always your arrangements and bouquets and headdresses and all kinds of fabulous things, but not enough of you. Oh, no,
2: no, no. I, I'm not going on those squares. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to create beauty. here. <laughs> But thank you for well, this. Just so you know, if you're listening to the
0: audio version of this, uh, Lucy is very much, you know, you've got the model thing going on, you're this six foot, lots of lovely blonde hair. And you keep saying things like, I've been gardening for 30 years, which doesn't seem possible um, <laughs> considering what you look like. So if you've got the Dorian Gray portrait in the attic or whatever you're using, I want it. <laughs> you are silly.
2: Thank you. I love you. <laughs>
0: Lucy thank you very much will you come back again another time I would love to I would love to we look forward to it for the meantime in between time happy gardening and we look forward to seeing more of your fantastic flowers on your Instagram thank you very thank
1: much
0: you very much Lucy bye bye happy gardening <laughs> hey Thordis here just to say thank you so much for listening to Talking Dirty you are now officially our favourite person If you really liked it, please do subscribe because we'll be back for more plant-loving mayhem next week. And as you're our new favourite person, we don't want you to miss out. If you've got a question for Alan and the experts, you can email it to hello at getgardeningnow.co.uk. So happy gardening
2: and we'll see you, oh favourite person, next time.